Hello and welcome to your favorite crossover podcast, Army of Crime. I am your co-host, Matt, and I am here with my co-host, Dustin. Dustin, hello. say hello to the internet people. Hello. Hello. This episode, we are looking at a 1938 French movie, La Marseillaise, and the comic book Wolverine and Nick Fury. The Scorpio Connection. Yes, so a, a deep cut into the archives of humanity is is what we're delivering to you here for sure. What would you like? What would you like to start with? You want to talk about the movie? I just watched it yesterday. Okay, let us discuss the Jean Renoir film La Marseillaise. So, Matt, you as the uh, history buff and also history teacher. What did you think about uh, acclaimed French filmmaker Jean Renoir's take on the French Revolution? So I really had no idea what to uh, expect going into this because the French Revolution is a incredibly thorny and meaty and complicated thing. And you could even debate like what years and what events it even encompasses, right? So what they've done here is it's actually pretty early in the revolution. So it doesn't even go through like the death of the king or the, the proclamation of a republic even. So historically, they've chosen to just kind of do just a very little bit at the beginning. And again, not knowing what to expect, um, they've chosen to actually focus a lot on sort of minor uh, like insert characters that are like street view or like regular people characters. And I was a little thrown at first because it starts and you're like, okay, I don't know what's you know, it starts with these people. They're like living in a mountain somewhere. They're kind of like exiles. Um, and they show you kind of how unjust or how kind of feudal or backwards France still is in the late 1700s. So you get these kind of insert characters who are slice of life people. And then they kind of trudge through the history, I guess. And then we get and then at the end, it's sort of the climax is the siege of the Tuileries Palace. You know, it was interesting, which is usually the thing you say about a student film um, that you didn't like. You say, oh, that was interesting. It was interesting. So the, it focuses a lot on like small conversations between individuals. He really chooses to save all the epic stuff for like right at the end. And certainly you could have the whole thing just be a sweeping epic from beginning to end. And he really chooses not to do that. It's a lot of conversations it's a lot of rooms you know in, until until you get very close to the end so i mean jean renoir is a uh, matter are you familiar uh, familiar with this to filmmaker some, to some degree but i feel like you're about to drop um a ton of knowledge on me well he uh is a filmmaker who through his career was largely concerned with you know he was never i don't think like very overtly political but very much like a humanist uh filmmaker concerned with you know the like lives of mostly like ordinary people generally like my favorite film of his is the rules of the game which is kind of like a slamming doors farce set among at like a french country estate and focusing on not only the travails of like the aristocrats but also like the servants and the staff and so i think what he is attempting to do here in la marseillaise is give you a similar humanist take on the early events of the french revolution sort of the lighting of the flame and then but through the eyes of regular people because there are you do get a few scenes with uh, the king and the queen especially towards the end but 
you know, generally most of the like big name historical figures that you would think of in the French Revolution, like Robespierre is mentioned, but he never appears on camera. And so you're getting more of like a people's history of the beginning of the French Revolution. And as such, he doesn't give you a lot of epic sweeping battle scenes. It's more of just like the day-to-day quotidian concerns of the average people who are getting like swept up into these historical events. And like you said, it kind of, one of the inciting incidents at the beginning is a guy killing a pigeon. uh, And then the aristocrat who like owns the land that the pigeon was on basically takes him to court and wants him. They said, send him to the galley. And I assume that is that, like we're gonna hang him, or is that like send him, put him in prison? I'm actually sure. not a thousand percent sure based on the context because the other parts, I feel like they it made it sound like it was like labor. Yeah. Well, either way, the, the they're like wanting to uh, levy uh, uh, like a ridiculous level of punishment on a guy for killing a pigeon, so he like runs away, and that's and he meets uh, the this who becomes kind of the protagonist of the film, Bomier. As they're like, also, there's the, like these three guys and Arnois, they're like exiles, kind of like living in the mountains because they've all had to like run away from, you know, these like ridiculous, unjust things that have happened to them in French society. So it sounds like, Matt, you were maybe hoping for more of the uh, epic, you know, the important people version. And then instead you got, you know, the people's history. Not necessarily. I guess it set me up for that because the very first scene has the king in it. Like literally, it does. The, yeah. Literally the opening scene is them going to talk, is, is a person coming to talk to the king. And that kind of set me up. But the king is, the king and uh, Marie Antoinette are the only, like, real big ticket historical people that show up on screen. There's a lot of people mentioned. They actually, they mentioned um, Lafayette. They mentioned Rochambeau. They mentioned Marat. So there's a yeah. lot of historical people mentioned and a lot of things happening in the background. No, I, I mean, I have no objection to that. I guess it's just not what I expected because he does open with the king. It's an interesting choice because like they talk about the assembly a lot, but we never see the national assembly, for example. Right. I mean, it's even right because the, the characters that it follows are people who would hear about what the National Assembly is doing. Like, they're not important enough to be in, you know, the National Assembly. Like, this is, um, I believe the main character is a, is a guy who is a Mason, and he volunteers to join uh, the French army, and then they march from Marseille to uh, Paris. And then Yeah, that's it's where... interesting to see, because they're, what they're, um, what's happening is, like, the army the national army is being formed like the nucleus of it from the the conscripts coming from all like the districts which is a whole process that i feel like in history and in movies certainly always happens in the background but you know someone has to like sign up all these people and, and have them march you know we, we watch them like travel through the countryside and, yeah. and get to the capital and they like debate what the, is the best thing to put in your boots to help your shoes not get so sore and stuff like that, and they complain about eating potatoes too often and that, so... Yeah, and the through line is the patriotic song that they pick up in their hometown sort of percolates throughout France and, of course, becomes the... Is it the official national anthem of France? I don't know if it is. I'm not sure if it is or not right now. But it's associated with the revolutionary period, certainly. Yeah, And that's kind of the through line. And that's, the, of course, the title of the film is the La Marseillaise. 
and the main character uh, initially finds the song kind of annoying and complains about it, but then is exposed to it so much that then he like, you know, as everyone else does kind of fall in love with it. And you see, like, there are parts where they talk about like new verses that people have like written for it and stuff. So it becomes, you know, sort of this like a literal uh, rallying cry, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I actually found myself, you know, initially I was, it took me a little bit to get into uh, this movie because of the way that it sort of like hops around a little bit between these like different characters. And it's kind of like, where is this going? Um, but once it kind of like found the uh, the main character sort of being able to throw in with the newly formed army, I um, sort of got into it. And I think the decision to, you know, save one like battle scene towards the end, like really um, was really effective because it's sort of like you have all these like normal, regular people who are signing up for this cause. And then you don't actually get to see, you know, like they're in nervous anticipation of like, are we going to actually have to fight? Are we going to have to like die and kill people for this? And, you know, that's always like looming as something that's coming potentially, whether or not, you know, the king or the the aristocrats or the aristos, as they call them derisively, are going to surrender. So then it like builds up to this finally, where at the, as you mentioned, at the, the Tuileries Palace, where some of the guards surrender but then they end up having to fight the swiss the dangs the dang swiss the the swiss are the hardcore they don't they don't surrender so would those be swiss mercenaries yes i believe those are yeah swiss mercenaries that are like the top of the line mercenary forces that you bring in to be like the king's bodyguard i believe today they are still on call as the pope's official bodyguards like swiss mercenaries i believe that's a thing and of course, yeah, they don't surrender because they're they're on contract to have like a, a honor bound oath. And as we see, you know, there's different conflicting loyalties within France between the National Guard and the aristocrats. But the Swiss would have signed a contract with the king. And as you mentioned, the beginning felt a little disjointed because they do jump between a lot of years at the beginning. And I think they're trying to like there's a part of the beginning where they're like, is it a revolt? And they say, no, sire, it's a revolution. And I think they just wanted that in there. Because the beginning is a little disjointed, but yeah, once it gets going, I and I kind of understood what we were what we were getting here. I was definitely on board with it. it. Actually, I felt like it went by really fast. I was like, oh my gosh, this movie's almost over, and then we're getting up to the palace and everything. And I, I thought it was a good movie. It's an interesting historical thing, right? Because it'd be like if you made a movie about the Revolutionary War, but you only had Lexington and Concord in it. I guess it would be the American equivalent. And in some ways, that keeps it all neat and clean. And compact and it's not sprawling out into a bunch of other things because of course if you keep following the war you're looking at like endless series of wars against all sorts of other countries right and then you get napoleon like becoming an emperor and so this instead of getting into the like all of the messy you know it it allows you, you to keep sort of an idealistic take on the the french revolution by keeping it in the early years which obviously i think is what you know, he's going for here as a, um, you know, this movie was made right before World War II broke out. And I don't think it was meant as sort of like, a, even though at the, it ends with them like going into battle against the Prussians. Um, but I don't think it was, you know, it's not really meant, I think, necessarily as like a patriotic, uh, like raw, raw kind of thing, more as just like a, 
you know, a plea for humanity and for, you know, freedom and, and those kind of like high minded ideals. So I think keeping it the focus on the early parts of the French Revolution kind of, you know, goes with that. Yeah, you can see a bit of a contrast with another film that we actually talked about on this podcast, which is Alexander Nevsky, right? Oh, okay. Which, which does give you a little more of the bombast, like patriotism, um, also about fighting Germans. That is also about fighting Germans. And that film was, you know, made much more explicitly as like a call to arms of we're going to step on the Germans' throats kind of right. thing. I mean, here, here we never actually see the Germans. No, they're they're talked about frequently. And then you do get some scenes with these uh, French aristocrats in exile, you know, debating about, you know, because they're basically now thrown in with the Prussians to, like, conquer France so they can get back into power. And then they're kind of, like, debating about whether to go through with that kind of thing. But, yeah, you don't actually ever see the Prussians. Matt, were you disappointed that your favorite historical figure, Robespierre, was not featured on camera maybe a little i you could make a really is there a really good movie you know you probably know more french movies is there like a really good movie about robespierre you certainly could make one there might be fascinating he's a fascinating historical like character i know um i remember when we discussed the movie uh canal that filmmaker andre beta i know made a film about the french revolution which i believe might be about uh robespierre but i could be wrong yeah yeah because like robespierre and the committee for public safety and that whole thing would certainly be a fascinating story no i did like this movie i was a little thrown in the beginning uh the there's a lot of cuts in the in the beginning where they're kind of jumping ahead a couple years until they sort of settle into what the story is going to be but no i thought it was a good movie interesting historical thing i i don't see a lot of french movies from this kind of period because i am an ignorant plebeian so you might be able to judge its quality vis-a-vis its contemporary films better than me well you know i did not get into this as much as other sort of renoir films like the rules of the game but yeah i did enjoy it i think um you know one of the great things that he did in like rules of the game or grand illusion you know, I think some of these other films, I believe, maybe benefit more from like a tighter focus. And his, uh, I think, mise en scene is better served for like these small scenes of like uh, like characters moving around, you know, in like limited locations, like Rules of the Game or like the prison setting of Grand Illusion. Have you seen either of those films, Matt? I don't believe that I have. Again, I, I'm ignorant. I represent the the unwashed masses uh eddie lunchbox perspective here okay that's cool i mean somebody has to yeah but yeah i mean i think it 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 slots in well with other like of his like humanist films from the 1930s but i do or i guess from like the late 1930s you might say but yeah i don't know i do kind of feel like uh that it's maybe not as well known for a reason. I mean, like it does all come together really well, but I found sort of the impeccable uh, mess on scene of a film like the rules of the game or a grand illusion to be a little more, you know, naturally exciting. Whereas 
Um, but overall, I did actually like it quite a bit too. Like, I think the the second half where it sort of like builds an anticipation to the uh, attack on the, the Tuileries Palace is where the film like really picks up. So Matt, why in the French Revolution were there women carrying spears? I actually don't know now that you say that. I wonder did you, if it's did some... you notice that too? I did notice that, and I wondered if they were going into battle or something. And I'm like, I don't think that they that they did. Um, I'm actually not sure. I wonder if it's in reference to somehow in reference to the Roman Republic. Oh, okay. Yeah, I noticed that they're along with like the the soldiers, and then like sort of the the drafted, you know, unofficial soldiers. There was like women running with uh, with them, like just carrying spears instead of guns. Yeah, I'm actually not sure. Uh, La Marseillaise is actually a film that was just recently restored. I think for a long time it was sort of like unavailable, but uh, La Marseillaise is a lesser known film from the acclaimed French filmmaker Jean Renoir. And I think we would well say that's probably not among his uh, stronger works, but definitely uh, still a solid film. Is that is that accurate yeah. to say? It it is. I, I was I just typed uh I was just researching this stuff about the spears. There's like a lot of um paintings from this period that show women running through the streets with like pikes and stuff. So it's some kind of concept. I'm not I'd have to research it more, I suppose. I suppose you would. Yeah. I wonder if it has something to do with like the rioting in the city or whatever, like it's a weapon, um, like kind of a free weapon that you could pick up, um, you know, like that doesn't take up a gun. But of course, they didn't actually allow women to join the military. Anyway. So, Matt, what were we going to uh, talk about next? Wolverine and Nick Fury, the Scorpio Connection. Uh, written by Archie Goodwin and art by Howard Chaikin. It features the titular Marvel heroes, Nick Fury, he of Eyepatch and Cigar, and Wolverine, also of Cigar fame, no Eyepatch. Uh, so you pick this. What was your, what's, what's, walk me through the Dustin process here. Um, well, for some reason, I, this was, this is from a, line of Marvel original graphic novels that they published in the late 80s, early 90s. And they're sort of published at like oversized kind of like European size, if you will. And I, for some reason, find a number of these Marvel graphic novels kind of fascinating. They did sort of a mixture of kind of like original stories and then stories using like licensed Marvel characters. And they did some, there were some actually really good ones. Like uh, there was a Frank Miller, Bill Sinkovich, Daredevil, Love and War. Um, there was really good, like Conan the Barbarian one that was drawn by um, John Severin. And so for whatever reason, I find this kind of like fast, these, this like, you know, period of time fascinating. And then like the, like you said, Howard Chaikin and Archie Goodwin. So I was like, this could be interesting. Um, but, you know, I feel like the problem with, it's like 
this is sort of billed as an original graphic novel, but it definitely still requires you to have a, maybe not requires, but it, it's, it definitely does not feel all that much like a, a standalone story because of the way, and I did not realize this, but it references this villain is named Scorpio, who is Nick, who apparently was Nick Fury's brother, who I had never heard of before. And then in the beginning, it also has the villain Arcade and like the entire like X-Men are in it. So for like a standalone story, I feel like it actually gets fairly. Um... Well, didn't we do Doctor Strange, Doctor Doom, Triumph and Torment? I believe that was a Marvel original. Right. Graphic. That's from the same. That's from the same kind of line, the same yeah. time period. And I feel like similarly, that also like was not all that like did not like read all that well as like a standalone graphic novel yeah um, i mean i guess I Wolverine, this was um oh i was gonna say it's um it's all right but i mean the draw point here i definitely would say would be the howard chicken uh visuals yeah because the actual story itself is pretty forgettable and i think it does kind of require you to uh already have a fair working knowledge of who all these characters are yeah yeah, I thought it was a fun little read. It, it's pretty short. It feels pretty lightweight. I've seen some editions collect a bunch of these Scorpio stories together that were all published kind of apart, and I feel like that might be the better way to go at it. Part of it exists in this weird... This is, if I could go on a tiny tangent about superheroes. So this is ostensibly... We're, it, it's kind of a James... I think they're going for sort of a James Bond spy feel. Super yeah. spy feel but plausibly we could call it a superhero story it's this weird nether world of superhero comics where they're like serious and they're trying to go for some gravitas but also there's a lot of you know costumes and jumping around and stuff and i feel like sometimes you get this weird middle ground that's kind of squishy and it, it makes it feel a little more lightweight than what they're going for because the scorpio character he has a fairly you know bombastic costume and his weapon is like a key, a giant key that shoots like sound waves. Yeah. And then there's also some kind of emotional beats that we're trying to hit. It ends up feeling a little little squishy in the middle, You're if you see what of, I'm saying. of describing things as being squishy? What does that mean exactly? I think something that's squishy is something that doesn't give you a real strong impression, I guess. Okay. Like, if we're going to have a dude with a multicolored costume with a key that shoots sound waves, like, let's just go full hog and just have a lot of wild stuff happening. But then on the other end, we have Wolverine and Nick Fury, who are, like, very serious dude doing serious dude stuff. Yeah. Like, yeah, I think the, the problem is, yeah, like, they're trying to split the difference between, like, this is a serious, like, James Bond globetrotting espionage adventure, but it's also a superhero story. And it yeah. sort of like unsuccessfully sits in the middle of those two things. Because like the way Wolverine is introduced to the story is the X-Men jumping in to fight the supervillain Arcade. So it's like you have all the X-Men and then you have this Arcade guy who's like uh, this like evil amusement park, you know, maestro who then is actually a robot and then he like explodes and then it's like that's their way of like oh getting like Wolverine into the story, which definitely sits more much more uh, firmly in the superhero sort of side of this. Can I just say also that the the uh, gender dynamics of this are uh, let's call it not great, a little a little dated, let's say a little little behind the times. 
Yeah, I think that would be uh, fair to say. What makes you say that, though, Matt? Well, the only real female character in it is like an evil, like, um, is like an evil lady who's warping her child's mind all because she hates Nick Fury, who she used to be in love with. So she's like a spurned mistress turned supervillain. And that's like really the only other female character. And then there's some other conversation at the beginning where a bunch of ladies are sitting around talking about how, you know, they wish that they could date Nick Fury, but he's so unavailable or whatever. Oh, yeah. Um, Like, he's so hot. I just, oh, but he's so dedicated to his work. Yeah. Though in, its will... defense, in its defense, Nick Fury does himself uh, think about how maybe he's too dedicated and he never had any kids and stuff like that. Um, so in, in its defense, it's not just the ladies thinking these sorts of things. But I, I did kind of notice that while I was reading it. I did still think it was fun. I mean, it, it's an okay read. Uh, the high point is probably the the art, as you mentioned. Yeah. If you were going to read it, I would find the one that has all of the all of the stories together and not just like this one because the technically the one we read was just the scorpio connection i think there's like multiple sequels to that that continue this the story of this particular character oh the scorpio guy yeah i because i had never heard of this this villain before but apparently you are saying he's sort of a big deal well i i'm not I haven't read the sequel, so I guess I couldn't even say. But I know there is multiple other versions, because when I was trying to find this, there is one that just has all of them together. And that would probably be a little meatier of a read. Meatier as opposed to squishy. Yeah. Those are my... Those are my... Um, it's a... Those are the poles of... Right. Meaty versus squishy. So one thing I will say that I enjoyed about the visuals in this comic is that there are several segments that are like flashbacks that kind of go into... Uh, this like coloring where it's like all like red and then part of them is like Wolverine in the desert where he meets this other uh, one of the minor characters uh, named David Nanjawara who's a shield agent or becomes a shield agent so you have this like flashbacks that are like in the desert that are kind of that are all like reddish and then later you have flashbacks with uh or the sequence and i guess it's not a flashback but the sequence in venice with nick fury and wolverine and, and scorpio fighting where everything is blue like hinted blue with these like little uh highlights of like the like yellow street lights which i think are very beautiful and then there are some really nice sequences where when scorpio is like using his magic key weapon thing where everything is like red, like a really like a vibrant, like violent red, which I think are really, which I think is like a really effective. And you know, Howard Chaykin is always great at like uh, facial expressions, I think, and like the sort of like close ups, if you will. So there's quite a few um, great ones of all of the, uh, the main characters, especially the, uh, the like the villains. I think have a lot of like a really great panels. And then the one thing I will say is what did you think about like uh, Wolverine's like uh, fringe leather jacket? It shows Wolverine wearing this like leather jacket with these like fringes hanging off of it. And he has like a matching cowboy hat and like these like tan pants. I guess he's Wolverine. He can, he can pull it off. I just feel like this is a little bit of a silly look for yeah. uh, Wolverine. Um, but he does. So, 
but it does uh, stand out well, like in this like blue lit like bar sequence. You have like Wolverine in yellow, and then Nick Fury with like his brown leather like bomber jacket are like the two standouts in this like otherwise, you know, bar full of normies. But I'm just saying, Wolverine not the greatest fashion sense. It's my opinion. He yeah, probably the idea disagree. of Wolverine, the the idea of Wolverine trying to go like incognito or like not be noticed is kind of hilarious. Like he's like he's on the down low, right? He's on a spy mission, but he still just looks like Wolverine. Like anyone would would spot him like easily. Well, then what's the funny too is that when he's like goes into you know action, so to speak, he puts on like his superhero costume. Oh, he stops and changes into his X Men costume. Yeah. Yeah, which is kind of funny because it's like, oh, it's time to get down to business. When yeah, which he on... doesn't do anymore. Now he, I don't even think he usually wears his costume, yeah, um, as much in his in his like own standalone comic. You know what's another really uh, great visual in this is uh, there's a helicopter crash towards the end. Oh yes, that's, yes, that, that that's is like, actually very good. That's like really great. Where it's like uh, it, he uses like the whole page, and then there's these like uh, vertical like panels kind of like growing in size and then the last or these two vertical panels like a smaller one and then a medium-sized one and then the rest of the page is this helicopter crashing to the ground with this office building in the background with all this like debris fluttering around it's a great uh it's a great page yeah i think the art like i mentioned i think the art is the strong point archie goodwin is no slouch but the the story does feel a little thin. Yeah, the story is 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 a pretty uh, standard, you know, superhero yarn. You know what's funny though is that I have the original. Did you read the original graphic novel, like it, the physical copy? I found a uh, Kindle, like digital, for like a couple bucks. So if you okay, so if you read the back cover of this book. The the way it like the degree to which it like hypes up this comic is pretty unbelievable. Did you see this? Uh, you can read it for me. Refresh my memory. It says, author Archie Goodwin has crafted a nerve shattering scenario with a climax so riveting, so unexpected it will take your breath away. This is a thriller crammed with the twists and turns worthy of Ian Fleming himself. And Goodwin's effortless prose and penetrating insights into Marvel creations, Nick Fury and Wolverine make the Scorpio connection a feast for the espionage famished. Likewise, artist-designer Howard Chaikin bursts the bonds of the medium as he delivers his most inspiring work to date. His pacing and graphic gymnastics form a perfect complement to the scripting prowess of Goodwin. Chaikin's page compositions, unrivaled in the field, make each panel a contemporary work of art. Two of the most respected talents in comics have combined forces to present the Scorpio connection. It's bound to be the covert classic of the year. Don't miss it, no matter what your sign. I think whoever wrote that ad copy should get a, a co-credit as like writer. It, uh, yeah, it's pretty uh, astounding, the degree to which, you know, it's interesting because at the time, of course, being a, an object of its time, it was like, this isn't a regular old comic book this is a graphic novel. So they have to like hype it up. Like it's a serious, like literary achievement when really it's just like a, you know, could have just been published as like a, you know, 
you know, giant sized issue of Wolverine or something. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it was a fairly random choice on my part and uh, it's fine. The art is nice. Like if you at all enjoy the stylings of Howard Chaikin, it's worth it for that. But other than that, it's a pretty uh, bog standard Wolverine, Nick Fury team up story. I was going to say, do you have anything else that you're that you're into these days there, Mr. Dustin? Me? Yeah. Just to close out our our escapades here. Let's see. You know, I was uh, just the other night reading the comic book uh, Judge Dredd Judgment Day written by Garth Ennis. Yes, I have actually not gotten to that yet. That uh, I own, so I own Judge Dredd Complete Case Files. We should really do some Judge Dredd on this podcast. I own Judge Dredd Complete Case Files one through sixteen, and I believe Judgment Day as a storyline is actually in Case Files seventeen. So it's in my it's in my docket. I will have it, I'm sure, in the near future at some point. Because I think that would be like the late eighties. Yeah, yeah. It's about an evil. Uh, basically like a necromancer from I think the future or another dimension uh, is raising all of the corpses that exist on the planet Earth in Judge Dredd's time as an army of zombies to conquer the world. Yeah, and I believe, isn't it, I see, I don't know and there's I, a, I haven't read it. It's a crossover, isn't it, between multiple 2000 AD properties? Yeah, so then the character the of um, from Strontium Dog, Johnny Alpha, travels backwards in time from the future to try to kill this uh, necromancer guy whose name is, I think, Sabat. Yeah. Um, I, I it's, do like, it feels I do really like weird. Judge Dredd. Yeah, it, it de- definitely does not feel like your standard Judge Dredd story because, like, as it gets going, you have... Judge Dredd teaming up with an international team of judges, and then they're all wearing this like big power armor as they go down and like fight a horde of zombies. Yeah, that's so one it, of the strong things of Judge Dredd is it can change into like a Judge Dredd story can basically take you anywhere. So, yeah, yeah it can go into outer space. You can go into Western mode. You can cyberpunk. You can just like high science fiction. Almost like space opera is what it sounds like. I, I will actually. I, it's on, uh, next on my list to read. Case Files seventeen, I think, has it. Okay. Yeah, I, I haven't finished it, but I was reading that. That's a really uh, solid comic book. Though you know, on the what have you been reading lately, Matthew? You know, I just started reading Copra Volume Two. I have a bunch of the issues. I haven't. I haven't dived into them all yet. I think I've just read the first two. Um, I do like the Copra. So Michael when you say White. volume two, that's uh, the new Image series. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which it is started like a over sequel, at sequel one. slash starting point, I guess. Well, it picks up right where the previous series left off, like literally, like on a cliffhanger. Oh, see, I never. I, I read a little bit of the first series and I liked it, but I never had a bunch of them. So I saw when they started at a new, new number one, I kind of jumped in with that, and I like Copra a lot. I mean, Copra is good stuff. It's it's a very like creator own it's it's an auteur thing right it's yeah he's right writing drawing the whole thing and it's interesting because he uses a lot of characters that you can tell are like based on like famous like dc marvel characters and he just kind of like mixes them all in there and it's it's kind of a fun fun way of doing it 
yeah, it kind of and... shows you that like the superhero concept because it is also a spy thing. I mean, ostensibly it's like Suicide Squad, right? It's like a riff on Suicide Squad. Yeah, but it shows you that the superhero concept has a lot of life in it. You just have to look at it with some fresh eyeballs sometimes. Yeah, I mean, by virtue of this not being like characters that are not allowed to change or die because they have like merchandising and all this other stuff, it allows him to like do, you know, different stuff with it. But I think the highlight of it is that, and I believe, is it Michelle, Michelle Fifi? I actually don't know how to pronounce his name. Um, but the his art is is amazing. Like, yeah, he doesn't he doesn't draw it like what you would expect from a superhero book. It's kind of like the kind of art that you can only get away with on like a non, you know, like it's a riff on the Suicide Squad, but no one would ever let anyone like draw the Suicide Squad like this. Yeah, because it has this very much like, um, I don't know what you'd even made call in it. your garage. Like, yeah, like a, it's almost like a like a. A zine. Yeah, it's deal. got sort of like a DIY aesthetic and really like bold uses of color and, you know, space and really like thick, you know, curvy lines. And it's it's really nice. Like I would basically look at anything that he would draw. But Copra, yeah, is fantastic. And that actually, if you want to circle it back around by being a super spy thing, could count as a, a recommendation for the super spy thing we talked about this episode. Sure. Let's tie it in. We don't have to. Now well, you have to make a connection between Judge Dredd and La Marseillaise. Well, they're both about... No, I've got nothing. People who live in a world? I guess. Anyway, do you, have an, do you want to have an official recommendation? Well, for a recommendation, I might just recommend another uh, Jean Renoir film, The Rules of the Game, which I kind of mentioned a few times because it's my favorite film of his. But I feel like it um, gets at the same kind of like broadly humanist ideas that La Marseillaise is going for, but in a more fun and really like eye catching and sort of uh, uh, like wild way that really grabs you. It's, uh, like I said, kind of like a slamming doors farce about the goings on at this like French estate between the uh, bourgeoisie and the uh, proletariat, if you will. Which, of course, from watching this film and from any of his other films, you can tell where his uh, sympathies obviously lie, and it's not with the bourgeoisie. Well, I think we could call that a show. As always, you can find us on armyofcrime.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter at armyofcrime. Dustin is at Dustin444444. There's a lot of... Dustin44444. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, leave us a fours. review. I don't know yeah. why. There's a lot of fours. It's it's dumb. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Well... Twitter, Twitter is itself sort of dumb. I'm. It's true. Probably, it's tr I look at it. I mean, I look at it more than I should, so I'd, I, I, I can't judge. But anyway, uh, if you want to leave us a review, we would definitely, definitely, definitely appreciate that. Um, we're calling this season one of our show, and I think we're sort of inching towards the finish line on season one, um, and then we will go back into the, the podcast factory, and start cooking up season two. 
got to reset, you know, all the machines to pump out the season twos. Yeah. Yeah. I actually have uh, a new child on the way. So I'm going to take a little break from life, I guess. And then we'll we'll uh, we'll crank out the podcast season two widgets at some point. Yeah, if uh, always find us on Twitter, yell at us, uh, ask us any questions, give us recommendations, suggestions, whatever you want. As always, kids, viva la liberté, liberté égalité, fraternité. know more about comics than me so I, i'm not actually sure what role i fill on this podcast